If you have a Bible, you can open it up to Acts chapter 6. We're going backwards a little bit. My brother was here last week. You guys enjoy him? I'll pass on the word. Yeah, he's all right. So he's just, he's just all right. Uh, one of my heroes, to be honest. Uh, let's pray. Jesus, thank you today for your word, your truth uh, that you've left for us and want us to walk in obedience to who you are. Today, as we study your scriptures, I pray, ask, plead that it would impact our hearts, change our lives, um, and would just cause us to go out into this world and love others well, care for others, forgive others. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we're going to pick up in just a moment in Acts chapter 6, but what I want to do is tell uh, what I might describe as a familiar story here, if you've been here for a while, at the church, and then we're going to table that story, we're going to deal with the text, and then to some degree we're going to come back to that story in just a moment. But the way uh, this goes down is um, early on in life, has anybody ever had difficulty or problems with, with people, whether early on or even right now? Yeah. Anybody been hurt by people? Yeah. Um, and what's the Christian response to when you're hurt by people? What are you supposed to do? Oh, pray. That's great. Yeah. What else are you supposed to do? Forgive. I love this. I love this stuff. Can I for- forgive? Well, um, the familiar story is a painful story, and you're going to get the shortened version. There's longer versions you can listen to online, but... Uh, once my wife and I uh, had gotten engaged, we ran into some difficulty with family. Nobody's ever ran into difficulty with family, have they? No. You just don't invite them to Thanksgiving anymore, right? <laughs> At least you know where you stand with Susan. So <laughs> I love it. Uh, so we ran into some difficulty with family, and it was pretty traumatic, to be quite frank. And what it was, it was two stubborn parties, truly two stubborn parties, not just them being stubborn, a husband and wife, but two stubborn parties. And it caused quite the division. And my wife and I, we, we got through our engagement, we got married, and we started kind of just doing, doing life and engaging in life and moving forward in life and what that all looked like. And there's, like I said, a lot more to that. We can talk about it over coffee someday. But here's, here's what happened. One night, I was given the opportunity to speak on Wednesday nights. I was trying to hone in that um, skill, gift, talent, whatever you might call it. And so my brother's like, hey, we start a Wednesday night and see if anybody comes. And so we started a Wednesday night gathering, and I was preaching through Luke's gospel, and I was in Luke chapter 7. And in Luke 7, there's this incredible story where Jesus is having dinner with a bunch of Pharisees. And this woman comes, and she lets her hair down at the feet of Jesus and just begins to wash his feet with her hair. And the Pharisees are sitting around like this. If he knew what she was like. The language that she translated, she's a woman of the street or a woman of the night. So just go to Vegas at any time of the day, and you can get an idea of what that might entail. She had a reputation and all the rest. And Jesus looks at the Pharisees. And he condemns them, and he just talks about forgiveness for this woman. And I remember that night, I was teaching this sermon, and honestly, it was one of those times where I was like, I'm kind of good at this. I think it's actually impacting people's lives. And so afterwards, kind of feeling out that moment, I get up, and during that moment of worship afterwards, I invite people to uh, go meet with others in the room and be prayed for and confess sin and ask for forgiveness and all the rest. And God sort of moves in that room that night, and I go home 
on cloud nine. Like, oh my goodness, it's so great when I get to function in my gifting. This is wonderful. And we get home, and it's a Wednesday night. It's about nine at night, and I'm making second dinner. I was a hobbit back then. And I'm having second dinner, flipping a quesadilla, and my wife's just looking at me. It's like, what's wrong with you? Tonight was awesome. Didn't God do anything in your heart? And she goes, and I'm going to PG-13 this. Well, that was a load of crap. What? What do you mean? She's like, yeah. You just said a bad word, honey. (laughs) And it floored me for what came next out of her mouth. How can you teach on forgiveness when you remain in a position of unforgiveness in this family situation? I remember just kind of you know when you are leaning up against something, you just slide down, annoyed, just sink down. And I fell to the floor there, not in like a dramatic, Benny Hinn kind of way. And I just slid down low to the ground and just burst in tears. Right. Every time the name comes up, I make jabs. Or I wish ill feelings towards these people. And in that moment, I was absolutely crushed. And I realized I'm a sinner who responds to sin sinfully. And in that moment, God begins to do something in my heart, in our lives, that he begins to work and move through. So let me just table that now for a second as we pick up Acts. And we're going to see how this all ties in. For Acts chapter 6 and 7 are these transitional chapters from which the church goes residing really in Jerusalem. And then beginning to fulfill what Jesus said would happen in Acts chapter 1. It's going to go to Judea, Samaria. And then as my brother talked about, even to the ends of the earth as it hit this Ethiopian eunuch who took it back to Ethiopia, the gospel for Africa. So he did such a wonderful job sharing on that. But not only does it talk about the movement of the gospel outward, but it talks about this disciple. And the story hones in on his life and how he having spent time with Jesus, learning from Jesus, actually goes and does the things that Jesus did. And it's not some significant miracle, although he did do some of those as we're going to read. But in this story that we're going to dive into, there's something very basic and simple that every follower of Jesus can practice and participate in. So let me read this to you. In Acts 6, beginning in verse 8, Stephen, full of grace and power was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, this is all important here, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Stephen was part of this group that had been dispersed. He was a Hellenistic Jew, so uh, Jewish by nationality, but having adopted much of the culture from the Greeks, primarily speaking that language. This is also his people, this synagogue. Yet this synagogue was full of people that were freed, no longer bound and enslaved, but practicing fervently their Jewish roots. And so you have this tension that's happening in here. And it says, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. They stirred up the people and the elders, the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up a false witness who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. 
For we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like that of an angel. So you have Stephen, you have his accusers, and you have what he's on trial here for. So go ahead and flash that up. Nope. Yeah, there we go. So you've got charges against Stephen. Are he is somehow making accusations against God, which we're going to look at briefly. Really, truly, the holy place, which if you've been at Redeemers the last, I don't know, two, three months, we know that the Jews, they would go to the temple to worship God. But now they are the temple. The church is the temple. God is dwelling in them. But they're saying, look, he is making these awful statements towards the temple that... We're going to destroy this place. Also, the accusations are Moses, who brought the law, and he's going to destroy our customs. Now, does this story sound familiar at all? Stephen, like Jesus, is being accused. Stephen, like Jesus, is being tried really unfairly in the way it goes about. Stephen actually responds like Jesus, as we're going to see later on, Stephen is going to die. Not crucified, but stoned, but die like Jesus. Why? Why? Well, before we get into that, there's this key verse at the end of chapter 6. And it says that Stephen's face, it, it shined like the angels. What's, what's going on there? God is doing something significant in this moment for anybody who's looking on. If you were steeped, entrenched in the biblical narrative of the Old Testament, you would quickly be recalling if somebody's face was shining to a little story about a man named Moses. Moses, who went on the mount, he received the law. He then had this area built, a tabernacle. And he'd also spend time with God. And afterwards, his face would be shining so bright that he had to veil it. It's this idea that God was with Moses in that place, that he'd been spending time with him. So too, what's happening here in this passage, it's God's affirmation upon Stephen, what he's doing, teaching, talking about, that the temple has come down, heaven has kissed earth in Stephen's life, in the church's life, and it's God's approval in Acts chapter 6, of all the things that Stephen is going to discuss and talk about, the longest sermon recorded in Acts for us. Don't worry, we're not going to read it all. But, but, what God is showing in here is his face is shining like that of an angel is. I'm with him, I approve him. So what is Stephen's story, or what's his sermon all about? You can read it later on today, on your own, if you'd like. But the first, I don't know, 40-some, 50-some verses basically goes through this Jewish history of how God raised up leaders and Israel would reject them. He would raise up deliverers to save them, and they would turn their backs on them. How they repeatedly disobeyed the law. Not only that, he moves through four epochs, four time periods of four different pilgrims, pillars of the Jewish faith from Abraham moving on down saying, look, God showed up to Abraham without a temple. God showed up to Moses without a temple. Okay, so it's not necessarily the building or the place that can house and contain God, but it's about God's presence with his people. 
And so his whole sermon, his whole point in this teaching is to get these Israeli leaders to understand that God is, in fact, doing something new. And then we get down to verse 51, and they don't like him. Why? We're going to read this, and we're going to focus on what I want to talk about this morning. He says, You stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. Those are bad words in the Bible. Okay, that is serious language. He's recalling and calling upon the Old Testament language of you have stiff necks like your fathers. You disobey. You're not listening. And your hearts, they're not circumcised. Oh, you men might be circumcised, but your hearts, what God is after, and they would have been going blasphemous, fuming on the inside that he had the audacity to call them these things. And he says... It says, they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven. He sees the glory of God, the scriptures say. Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried with a loud voice, stopped their ears, rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he said this, he fell asleep. Wow. This is an incredibly powerful We're going to get to how this story pushes the church out as we look at a character profile of Saul and who he is and who he becomes. But before we move from this place to that place, we need to hit pause. Or kind of like in the psalm I read this morning, you see that word, selah, pause, think about that. Take a deep breath and see what God is doing in this moment. And we see this extreme example of the kind of forgiveness that Jesus calls us to. This is tough stuff. And I want to pause and pray for us this morning, because I think there's probably many of us in here who need to hear this on forgiveness, who need to extend it and receive it, who need to understand it and how it functions and operates in our lives. So let me just do that now. Father, we invite you into this place for the Holy Spirit to work and to move on our hearts as we consider what it means to forgive and how to forgive and even to forgive the things that have cut so deep and disrupted our lives and have caused shame and guilt, things we did not ask for but were heaped upon us as a result of the evil doing of others. Pray that we can move into this place, this space of forgiveness because of who you are. Move in us in Jesus' name. Forgiveness is not easy, is it? If you have a Bible or an app, go over to Matthew chapter 18. Jesus has quite a bit to say in this section of scripture on forgiveness. What I want to read to you, this whole story is is great if you read it from 15 on in the parable that's given. But I want to start in the middle, verses 21 through 22. Then Peter, 
good old Pete. He came up and said, Lord, how often, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Like that's, that's pretty good, right? If somebody sins against me seven times in a day and I'm able to forgive them, it's pretty much every day in your house if you have toddlers. Okay, they just sin it and tell them sorry, give them a hug, hug, hug it out, right, hon? All right, seven times. And as many as seven times, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. That's an intriguing number, isn't it? 77 times. There's lots of ways to theorize. Thank you, yeah what Jesus was doing here or why he was saying this number. Did he just pull it out of his hat? Nah, Pete, not seven, 77 times. But Jesus doesn't waste words or stories, does he? Does anybody know when the number 77 is mentioned in scripture outside of the story? I didn't either, but Tim Mackey did. And I listened to Tim Mackey this week. (laughs) So turn to Genesis chapter four. I love me some Genesis on a Sunday morning. Genesis 4. Now, you can skip past the Cain and Abel story. We, we are familiar probably with that story and the horrible things that Cain did to his brother. There's another man that comes on the scene. His name is Lamech, and he is lame, trust me. Okay, So Lamech comes on the scene, and in verse 23, Lamech says to his wives, Adah and Zalah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man wounding me. Good guy, bad guy. Bad guy, all right? Let me ask you again, church. Good guy, bad guy. Bad guy, guy. yeah, not cool. Kill the man for wounding him. Not kill the man for trying to kill him. Maybe he tried to, but he wounded him. Killing his kids. He killed a man just for wounding him. What does he say? A young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, right? Sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. 77. What's going on here? I think Jesus is intentionally counteracting Genesis 4. And what he's doing is drawing our attention and our minds. And he says, look, the natural inclination of a human being when they're wounded, when they're hurt, is to seek out not justice, but revenge. Anyone watch The Count of Monte Cristo? Or better yet, read the book. Right? He is not, Edmond Dantes is not satisfied with just getting the girl, getting the riches, and living his life out. But he wants to make Count Mondego suffer doesn't he? That is the language used, and that is how the story is told, how sweet revenge, which would be 77-fold, which would be so much worse, would actually satisfy me and make me content. And there's moments in the story where he has these opportunities to stop his pursuit, but his revenge, because that's what happens when unforgiving hearts can't walk into that space. Revenge consumes us, and it's no longer about justice, but it's about revenge. And that is a natural heart of humans since the fall. I mean, you punch me, I punch you twice. <laughs> that's just kind of how it works. That's kind of how we think. I'm going to make sure they never do this again. And so you see Jesus 
bringing this issue up and saying, no, 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 you're to forgive him 77 times. Now, I don't know if you guys know this, but forgiveness is actually very, fairly unique to the Christian tradition. Um, I just purchased Keller's book on forgiveness, which is fantastic. Go read it. You're going to realize where I drew so much material from the side from. But in this book, he basically outlines how the Greeks didn't really have this category for forgiveness. It was perceived as weak. It was not part of their culture. In fact, in an honor-shame culture, if somebody wrongs you, you better revenge yourself in order to remain having some kind of pride or honor in your culture. And so when Jesus comes on the scene and Christianity begins to move in, it is introducing this really radical concept to this culture of what it looks like to be forgiving. Now, this issue has been re-raised once again in our culture with many of the riots and movements that have happened. We shouldn't forgive one another because forgiveness lets somebody off the... Yeah, shoot, doesn't it feel like that? When you wrong somebody, don't you... Or excuse me, when somebody's wronged you and if you say, oh, I forgive you, doesn't it feel like you're a doormat and they're able just to wrong you again and again and again? Yes, and don't you want some kind of justice in that? Is Jesus calling us to be doormats? Oh, heck no. He is not causing us to be a doormat. In fact, if you just read up a little bit in Matthew 18, it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. Go to them. Reveal what they've done to you. Confront them between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you've gained your brother. If he does not listen, listen. If he does not listen, Jesus never intends for you to ever be in the presence of somebody who's harmed you alone again. Can I say that again? Jesus never intends for you to be in a place alone with the person who's harmed you again. How do I know? If he does not listen, take one or two along with you. That everyone may charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. Now this whole community is engaged. And if he refuses to listen to even the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector. Now, get on your like greatest Jewish mindset. If you are a Jew, do you invite Gentiles and tax collectors over for dinner? No, you do not. Do you hang out with them in close friendship? Do you think they're kicking it at the synagogue with you? No, they're they're not. In fact, Jesus is giving this provision in here where he's saying, if you've been wronged and there's no possibility for reconciliation, do not forget and forgive. Leave that up to God to deal with them. But what he's saying is, you might have to have safe space between you and another person. And this runs contrary to what so many have taught in the past, that it's the victim's job to make sure a healthy relationship happens again. It is not. It is not. It is not. It is not. And so this morning, that has to be our premise, the beginning point of what you hear as I talk about forgiveness, because I'm not asking a single person in this room to put themselves in an unsafe place. Do you hear me? Nobody in here to go back to the abuse. Nobody in here is to go back to the harm and the hurt and the pain over. Jesus said to turn the other cheek. He says, if, if you're slapped with, on the right side of your cheek, 
bust out of your teeth. I can't remember how I said it. Go read Keller. He basically said, it's how in Jewish history you gave an insult. And he says, you, you turn the other cheek. That's not to be slapped again. That's to remain in a position where you can forgive and hope for reconciliation someday. But he's not saying you're a doormat. That does not work. So so what are we going to do with this? What Jesus talks about in Matthew 18, 15 through 17 is somebody needs to be held accountable for the wrong they've done. Somebody has to be held accountable for the wrong that has been done. You go to them once, otherwise you're never alone with them again. And in the presence of others, you can't find resolution. There is not going to be reconciliation. But we do look for both forgiveness and justice. Forgiveness and justice. Mercy and justice coming together. Justice is pursued for God's sake for other potential victims that might be harmed. If you just forgive and forget or say, oh, it wasn't that big of a deal or, oh, that happened so long ago. I'm just, it's in my past. I don't feel like they should have to pay for any of it. I don't want to bring it up to anybody. You're harming potentially others by not uncovering wrong that has been done in harmful situations. And, and you're not looking out for the predator in that situation or circumstance. So we, we clear on all that. Not clear as mud, crystal clear. Forgiveness, how is it possible? The wrongs done to us, they greatly impact us. And don't minimize that this morning. The wrongs that have been done to us, they greatly impact us, but what we do with them has a continued effect or impact on our life. So what happens when we're wrong? Uh, Jesus uses in Matthew chapter 6, in fact, in the Lord's Prayer, this language of forgive us our Debts, yeah, sins, debts. So what is a sin? It is a, it's a debt, right? Sin, debt, you can somewhat interchangeably use those terms. Forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins as we forgive our debtors or we forgive those who have sinned against us. And I don't want to paint a rosy picture of forgiveness here this morning because when somebody sins against you, when somebody harms you, when somebody hurts you, abuses you physically, emotionally, sexually, we can go down that list. A debt has taken place. They have taken something. They put harm on you, shame on you, possibly guilt on you. And just to forgive, forget, and get over it is not going to be how we handle things. That is just of what the truth actually should be. So what do we do with this? As we forgive those who have wronged us, how do we go about that? Debt means something is junk. Now, whenever I talk about debt with my kids, they're like, Dad, I need a new skin for my video game. I'm like, Bruh. Those are lame and a waste of your money. But... If I give you the five bucks today, you either pay me back, you gotta work this off. It's a character, or like a coat for your fake character, <laughs> right? They make you buy that stuff now. To, it's dress up for gamers, whatever. If you're a gamer here, I apologize slightly. So, or, or I can pay the five bucks, and just simply let it go. Now, in that case, did the five bucks that I loaned disappear into thin air? 
No, I'm not the government. I can't just erase that. <laughs> If you like these floors, the PP loan did that for us. <laughs> All right. Thank you, government. So yes, I actually do appreciate that. So, so here's the deal. It doesn't just it doesn't just vanish. He has got this debt on him, and he's got to pay it off somehow. Now, take it out of this monetary world. When you wrong somebody, it is costly. It's either an internal debt or an emotional debt. Pain and suffering is the commerce that's taken place when there's been wrong. Shame has been heaped upon you. These feelings of just these dirty emotions have come around you. When we had our house broken into and stuff stolen from us, it wasn't even the laptop or the jewelry that was gone. It was the defilement that somebody made us feel that the stranger was in our house going through our stuff and taking it. And you're kind of going... Why do I feel gross about that? We were innocents. But why do I feel bad about that? Because that's what when somebody sins against us does. There is a debt that takes place. There's a debt that happens in that moment. And the question is, what are you going to do with that debt this morning? Sorry if I'm taking too long, but this is important. One of the things that you're going to do with that debt is you're going to yell back at a person. Doesn't that feel so dang good? <laughs> I mean, when somebody screams at you or when somebody cuts you off and you're like, you jerk! Like in the back seat, my kids are like, yeah, jerk. <laughs> oh, dad. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Don't let your kids hang out with my kids. I'm going to be honest, it feels super good when somebody hurts me to yell at them, to make them feel something. I feel like I'm getting back at them and it makes me feel like their debt is being paid down a little bit when I yell at them and I become a little less angry after that quick yell. Don't act like you don't operate this. You do. You operate like this, right? Or, or when somebody does something terrible to you and you're like, huh, I'm not a yeller. Come on, man. That's not who I am. When you do something just as bad, you can become incredibly cold towards a person. Or you can scowl and glare. <laughs> kidding me? And we have these icy, cold eyes that let the person know our displeasure every single time we see them. And as we glare week after week after week as they're taking communion in church. And we're supposed to be this family that forgives and we look over at them, they're a, they're a Christian? You gotta be kidding me. And finally, at some point, we feel like maybe they paid it down enough and I can begin to forgive them. There's also less direct ways. If somebody gossiped about you or hurt you to your face, you can go with a group of friends and you can tell all kinds of bad stories about them and feel like you've notched them down a few times. And if you notch them down enough times, finally they paid enough of the debt. That's it. Guilty by the way, of that. Guilty. Oh, finally, I've hurt them enough. Enough people know. Now I can actually forgive them and look like this angel in disguise because I've made them pay. And we all have these ways of making people pay over time. You might rejoice in their suffering 
if they've really hurt you, and then all of a sudden they're going through difficult and hard times, you might start going, yes, I'm so glad they're finally experiencing the pain they deserve. And after enough of that happens, you can let it go. That is one way to forgive people. The alternative is to absorb it yourself. Somebody has to pay. So instead of yelling back at them, you speak blessing towards them. Jesus said, bless those that curse you. Instead of giving them icy cold stares, you're actually rejoicing at their successes and praying over them. And every time you do that, guess what? It costs you something because you so badly want to cut them down, so badly want to hurt them. And you only perpetuate the cycle of sin when you participate in the lie that that's going to make things better. And you yourself become more deformed in the image of the enemy rather than conformed to the life of Christ. Each and every time we give in to, I know how to make them pay. Rather, Jesus gives us the ability to say, I can absorb it. I can take it. I can forgive them. No matter how difficult and hard that might be. I did not say reconcile with it. I said, forgive. You can absorb it. How do we do that? Well, Matthew 18, and we're almost done here this morning. It says, at the end of it, in verse 35, Jesus tells the story of a guy who is in debt, and this master forgives him, and then this just unsurmountable, this, this sum is so ridiculous. And then he just throws somebody in jail for like 10 grand, right? And then this wealthy, rich dude who this guy had a ton of money to, is like, I can't believe you did that. This is kind of on the heels of that story. He says, also as my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brothers from your heart. Forgiveness this morning starts here and now in your heart. Now. Not when they apologize to you. Not when they finally come to the conclusion that they wronged you. Not when you went to them, they molded over, you came to them with a host of other people and finally the church gets involved. Forgiveness in your heart starts now. If you don't forgive before you even go to the person, I'm telling you, it's going to be a disaster. And it's a choice that comes with a feeling later. Forgiveness is not going to be your initial feeling. Your initial feeling is Lamech. Let's destroy this sucker. Let's ruin their life. Let's hurt them. That's your natural inclination. What happens? I'm making a choice. How? How can that even begin to happen? I've got this chart up here by Keller that's going to get thrown up. This is in his book. I wish I could creatively make things like this. I can't, so I borrow them. Vertical, just either upward or, or downward here in which we're seeing, divine forgiveness is offered to you because of what Jesus has done. Now, now get this. I use the language, you can absorb it. What did Jesus do on the cross? He, it's a softball. Come on, guys. He, he did what? He absorbed it, didn't he? He took our sin, our shame, our pain on himself. So divine forgiveness is offered. So there's this vertical. Then there's this internal. What are you going to do with the forgiveness of Jesus in your own life? Are you going to go enslave, put others in prison? I've been forgiven. It's so great. And I sing all the songs. But you, you cut me off and you're going to burn. I'm going to make sure of that. When I speed around you, then you slow down on see, internal, you internally forgive, therefore you can seek reconciliation and justice. And then what happens? It goes horizontally. 
I think we just kind of go it's vertical and then horizontal. But what Keller's pointing out here is you have to do something internal. You have to forgive in your heart. Therefore, you can push that forgiveness out into the world. And the reason you can forgive is because Jesus has forgiven you. God's forgiveness comes to us. Our granting of forgiveness happens within us. Then it goes out to see reconciliation happen in the world. What is forgiveness? Miroslav Wolf, he says, the heart of forgiveness is a generous release of a genuine debt. A generous release of a genuine debt. If you've been wronged here this morning, I'm pleading with you so that you don't become twisted and bitter and distorted. I'm begging. They don't deserve it, but generously release a genuine debt. And that's what we're called to do as Christians. The parable that we didn't get to read, the story, the story is actually about a man who didn't offer what was extended to him himself. He was not changed by his master's forgiveness. Here's my question to you Christians. Are you changed by the forgiveness of Jesus? There's an easy way to answer that. Who are you holding grudges and an unforgiving attitude and spirit towards? Oh, shoot. (laughs) Maybe I haven't. Maybe I actually haven't been changed by this forgiveness. And that's what Jesus is getting at. And you know what? This takes faith. It takes faith to believe that in the end, God gets his justice. It takes faith to believe that God is going to have his way in people's hearts. Either they'll be transformed like our boy Saul is because of what goes on in Stephen's life, or they'll become further deformed and God is going to deal with them in his own ways. That takes faith to believe that God is able to do what he says he's going to do. And it takes faith to believe that God has no throwaway chapter in your life today. That the very things that have happened to you I don't believe in this kind of God that is the force and the cause of the evil that's happened to you, but I do believe he is the God who's able to take those things and work them for his glory and his goodness. Okay? And it takes faith to believe that this morning. And so if you sit here today condemning others, you need to meditate on the story. How is it that not only Stephen, who's being stoned, cries out, Father, forgive them, but an entire church forgives the very man who's responsible as those that stoned him threw their garments at his feet in his approval of their actions. And later on in Acts 9 and 11 and 12, we see the churches wrestling with, should we believe this Paul? Can we actually forgive him? And they welcome him. They embrace him. Though it's tough, I'm not going to lie. There is a struggle throughout Acts in the beginning of accepting Paul. But they're able to do that because God's done. How can you begin that transaction in your heart? Did you know it's not a one-time thing? Yes, God's forgiveness to us is. But I'll tell you what, when that person gets brought back up in your mind, or when you remember the person who still owes you 500 bucks isn't giving you the 500 bucks 10 years later, and you see them, and you're angry again, forgiveness can take time. Begin that today. Lord, thank you for your truth. Heavy heart today because I know that for some of us, these are minor areas, but for others of us, it's just major.
family's cut us so deep. Maybe we haven't spoken to them in years and we're reminded of that of again. Maybe the person that's wronged us is now dead. We can't even go to them. Maybe the debt that they have financially caused us has been so great that we've never gotten back on our feet in here. And yet you call us to forgive and pursue your justice, to not be doormats. So I pray for this church that we find ways to make waves in this area of forgiveness. That we know because of you, we're able to forgive. Thank you. Free us. Send us forth in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. What we're going to do here this morning, if you're new, I'm going to ask you guys to all just stand with me. I'm sorry. I promise next week will be a lot shorter. It's good stuff. Thank you, Donald. It's good stuff. I truly believe that. It's one of my favorite things to talk about, but it's serious. But I want to call us to forgive. And this morning, if you need to just take a moment and begin that process in your heart, as David's going to sing this first song, you can. The tables are going to be open. There's two up here, one up here. You can come get communion. You can think and process that. There's a box to give to what God is doing. Tim's going to come up and lead us in communion here in a couple of songs. Just take the time. Spend time with God. See what he might do in your heart to set you free and truly to set others. You no longer have to live under their reign in your life because they rule over you because you haven't forgiven them. Spend that time with God now. Let's do that.